if you can afford a family law attorney, go ahead and get yourself a, a state attorney too, just, just in case. <laughs> Welcome to episode 23 of the Wealth and Law podcast. I'm Brent Nelson. And again, as usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass back from her vacation. I am back. Hello. How are you doing, Brent? I'm doing very well. Doing very well. We had to deputize somebody in your place while you were out. All right. I I heard he did a pretty good job. So I I hope I still have some job security now that I'm back. You do, but he did well enough to be a repeat visitor. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so he he performed his way into an invitation to be a guest again. So sorry, Darren. (laughs) (laughs) If it's too awkward for you to say no to me, uh, that's in your future, unless you want to come back on. (laughs) Well, I'm excited to chat with him on the next time. So how are you guys doing? How was vacation? It was great. So we went up to the mountains. We went camping. Um, So we had about 70 degree weather, which was amazing. Uh, we realized we, we took the pups with us in an RV and we realized the day that we left that there was a pack of gray wolves about a mile away from our campsite. So that was absolutely terrifying. And what's interesting is we actually heard a howl too the last night, but we just thought, Oh, like our, you know, the camper is a mile down the road. They've got dogs. That was probably just their dogs. No, it was actually wolves. There are wolves in Arizona. I did not know that. So we, we promptly left after (laughs) I learned about that. You survived too. We survived. We survived. Yep. I, as, I, as did your dog. Yep. Yep. Exactly. You may have been on like their uh, their uh, favorite spot on the whole mountain when the wolves were like, well, I mean, we would hang out there tonight, guys, but there's an RV, so you have to find an alternative location. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hope our dogs were probably loud enough, maybe with all their barking, that maybe it sounded like they were their own pack of wolves to scare away the other wolves, but who knows? They stayed on their turf, we stayed on our turf, and we both walked out happy. Yeah, that sounds like, yeah, it's a good arrangement. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Well, tonight, Brent, um, I thought, maybe not the most happiest topic, um, but I thought it's it's an important topic and a good one to discuss, and that is the topic of divorce and kind of how it relates to estate planning. I mean, I guess for some people, it could be a really happy topic, Um, but we will see. But anyways, uh, tonight, we have Kayla Bernays. She is a partner at the firm Randall Palmer Renee's in Tucson, Arizona. And she is just an amazing person, really knowledgeable about this subject. And I just thought she'd be a great person to talk to. So Kayla, thank you so much for coming on and welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. How have you been doing? I've been good. How are you? Doing good. Is your, yeah. How's your summer? Have you been able to take any time off during COVID or escape the heat at all? No, not yet. Uh, my wife and I had plans since last year to go to Oahu in May, which got rescheduled to September, which has also been, as of last week, rescheduled again. Oh, no. um, we're keeping the week off next week and we're just going to, I don't know, go to San Diego or, or take day trips or something like that. So it'll be kind of our first good amount of time off since yeah. the nightmare started. Yeah. And that's kind of the only context in which you'd be like, oh, well, San Diego, I guess. Yeah, you know? just to be somewhere different. Yep. 
if the alternative was Oahu, then going to San Diego would be a disappointment, even though ordinarily that would be very fun. It, ordinarily it would, because my sister lives in San Diego and she's got her daughter and son who I would love to see, but COVID, so I can't. Um, uh, we'd love to go to the restaurants, but COVID, so we can't. Mm -hmm. um, the museums and a lot of the beaches, it, we're basically just going to go to my parents' house and just be somewhere cooler <laughs> is the big plan. Yeah. Hey, in, in Arizona, that's all you can really hope for, really, in the summer, mm -hmm. right? It's just to yeah. get somewhere that's not triple digits. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, did you get the same emergency alert I got? I just did. Yes. So for anyone who heard that, it is storming. We have an actual monsoon happening in Arizona. Wow. It's which is very much appreciated since it's been so dry and super hot this year. Um, yeah, a flash flood warning. That's the fun part about living in the desert too. There's always flash floods, and that means at this point, I'm probably stranded at my house, and the washes are full. Where good thing it's don't need to leave right now because I'm probably stuck. Yeah, our last big monsoon was actually on my birthday and I had taken the day off of work to just be home mm -hmm. and not work. And that was the day that it ran rained really, really hard. And I went to go meet my wife for lunch and I was driving north on Sweetwater. If, I don't know if anybody who listens lives on the west side of town with us, but um, there was like true rivers running east to west across Sweetwater and my car is pretty low to the ground. And I was like, I could either turn around or I could barrel through it. <laughs> hope the birthday gods keep me safe and go yeah. have lunch. And I did. And it was fine. So thank you, birthday gods. For <laughs> and for not letting me drown. <laughs> it's always scary. It's, I feel like in, you just need to see that one person who does it in front of you, who has a car, or a vehicle of similar type. And then you're like, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I got this. It, yeah, right? I got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should probably get to a podcast at some point tonight, even though the rain is amazing. Um, but like I was just talking with Brent, we are going to talk about divorce. Um, mm -hmm. And since you are a family law attorney, uh, this, you know, obviously you are very knowledgeable about this topic. And I just feel like this is a topic, like I said, it's not the most pleasant, but, you know, like estate planning, a lot of people sometimes don't want to have this conversation Mm -hmm. But it's it's something that just should be discussed, just should be thought about because, it, you know, with obviously with estate planning, until they create robots for all of us someday, we are, you know, inevitably going to pass away. Divorce, it's not inevitable, absolutely not, but it's something that could potentially happen. And so for someone who is in a position of wealth, if there's obviously children involved, it's something that you should think about. And especially if you're, you and your spouse have an estate plan together. So I kind of thought that we would talk about, you know, first, Arizona, we live in a community property state. So it's good to just kind of discuss that and get the basics on community property out. And then talk about prenuptial, postnuptial agreements, what actually happens um, once uh, you know, divorce is being filed, kind of what the process is, and then what happens afterwards once you have that divorce decree and um, you know, your assets, what happens to the children, things like that. So how does that sound like a plan for y'all tonight? Sounds good to me. All right. Well, so I think first, like, like I said, let's just get into community property. Arizona is a community property state. Um, so what that means is in Arizona, and 
all the other community property states. I think there's eight of them now. Um, during the marriage, any property that is acquired during the marriage is considered community property, which is 50% owned by 50% owned by one spouse, 50% owned by the other spouse. There's also separate property, and separate property is any property that is acquired before the marriage, or it could be a property that is acquired during the marriage that's by gift or inheritance. Um, it's acquired property that's acquired after a marriage has ended. And so when a couple, you know, is married, they're starting to generate community property. That could be income, your wages, that could be a business that you own either just by yourself or you own it with your spouse, you work together. Um, it's bank accounts, your house, your vehicle, all your personal property, you know, retirement accounts, 401ks, IRAs, pensions. It's, it's a whole lot that I don't think people kind of really realize. And so when a couple unfortunately goes through the divorce process and that some of those items are community property, those items are going to be subject to division upon divorce. And every community property state does it a little bit different too. Uh, we here in Arizona have a community property regime that for most circumstances is an aggregate view of community property, meaning you look at the total value of all the community property, and then you assume that both spouses have an equal interest in the total value, although not each individual item of community property. And then other states do an asset by asset uh, allocation of community property where each spouse is deemed to own 50% of each individual asset. So every Every state kind of has their own unique way of viewing community property, although in the end, functionally, uh, it kind of works the same. And the other, the other element of community property, in particular in Arizona, and I think this is true in most of the other community property states as well, is that for the most part, with just a few exceptions, either spouse has the authority to manage the community property and either spouse has the authority to incur community property debts. So just a couple little carve outs. One is uh, both spouses have to consent, at least in Arizona, both spouses have to consent to convey interest in real estate uh, or to sign a lease agreement for more than one year. Both spouses have to agree to uh, give a lien on community property or to a guarantee or surety that affects uh, community property as a liability. So these deeply, there's like these little big carve outs where you actually have to have both spouses. Uh, but for the most part, the idea is all the property is viewed as if it's owned by both spouses in the same amount, you know, 100% by both spouses, even though, you know, that's mathematically impossible, but, you know, it's viewed that way from like a property management and, and ownership perspective. And I think for a lot of people who aren't familiar with community property, that's a bit of a strange concept because in a lot of other states, quote unquote, common law state, uh, title really matters a lot more. Uh, you know, whose name is on the account, whose name is on the on the deed is a lot more important. Whereas in Arizona, it actually doesn't matter whose name is on the deed or whose name is on the account. Community property is community property is community property. And so uh, how you title it doesn't necessarily change things uh, unless you have an intent to change it from community property to separate property. And that's clear by the way that you've uh, done the titling. Maybe we'll, we'll get into that just a little bit when we talk about uh, prenuptial agreements and postnuptial agreements. I think that the way that property is divided in Arizona, that, that community property principle is actually really quite shocking for a lot of people who are going through the divorce process for the first time, which is most of my clients, but not all of my clients. Some people go through it a couple times. Um, but I, I find it's more shocking for those who 
are in marriages in which they are the higher earner, if they consider themselves more of the breadwinner, is they say, well, you know, my income paid for this house, paid for my car, paid for their car, paid for the, the furniture and the remodeling and all of this. And then it's very much my job to say that's super tough. I'm so sorry. Was, was that money you earned during the marriage? Was that property you acquired from the money you earned during the marriage? Did you buy this during the marriage? And if the answer is yes, then I am so sorry that that goes to half of it goes to your spouse. Um, I've seen it that people have to sell their houses um, to split the equity because they can't afford to buy out their spouse of, of their share of the equity, you know, selling other assets that they don't want to sell. Um, of course, my dog started playing with a toy the second I start talking. But um, the reason that I believe community property became a concept was for the other half of my clients who are not the higher earners, but are the ones who are the stay at home wives and husbands, moms and dads, whose main job is to take care of the home, take care of the children. They are not earning an income. So at the end of a 20 year marriage, if their spouse decides, you know, we're done and I'm taking all my stuff and I'm getting out of here, then if it wasn't a community property state, that person could be for lack of a better description hosed. So it's nice to have that sort of cushion that values both actual classically thought of labor being in the workforce versus the more domestic labor, the, the taking care of the house, taking care of the kids, that's valued. And you, you don't get kicked out of your house just because you decided to do that more task uh, or that more uh, household kind of task. I think that it has really benefited. That's right. I think it's really benefited uh, women in particular who are classically the stay at home wives and mothers. More modernly, I actually represent a, a I wouldn't say a lot, but a handful of stay-at-home dads and stay-at-home husbands, and it's really helped them too. But I, as a woman, definitely appreciate community property and, and how it's helped to protect women who, who don't join the workforce for, I don't know how long Arizona's been a community property state. I've never actually thought about that, but for however long that's been a thing, awesome. Great. Thank you. I think it's been a community property uh, area since it was the Spanish Empire. Uh, the community property rules, as I understand them, historically come from Spanish law and the common law rules come from English law. And so you've got this patchwork in the United States, somewhat along old colonial lines where you have old, you know, what used to basically be Mexico, not basically, what used to definitely be Mexico, uh, which now is a state like Arizona or New Mexico or, or uh, California, and they retained this kind of common law of community property, whereas other states that weren't Mexico uh, necessarily adopted the English system of common law. Although my, my impression of the way that other states function, although I don't think it's quite 50-50 um, in practice is that uh, they most of those states tend to have a concept of marital property, which functions somewhat similarly to community property and that you're tracking what was accumulated and earned during the marriage. And then in the divorce, the divorce court has the ability to look at the marital property and split it equitably, equitably excuse me, not necessarily equally, but equitably. And so to a degree, uh, or in the sense that like community property sort of tracks what's being accumulated during the marriage and gives some credit to both spouses for that. I think the marital property system in common law states somewhat approximates that 
uh, again, I, in function, I don't think it's quite the same. And the, the big difference being that marital property, as far as I can tell, is a divorce concept in other states, whereas in a community property state, the community property concept is not just a divorce concept. It's a property titling concept that then is applied in a divorce context. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't agree more, Brett. Um, so I think then it's, you know, you, you brought up earlier, Brent, that the prenuptial and the postnuptial agreement. So we, we've seen this quite a bit with our clients when we've got a brand new client who comes to us, uh, let's just say, you know, two spouses and uh, they're like, we want to do a joint estate plan, you know, and we tell them, you know, they tell us a little bit about themselves and we tell them, all right, this is what we think you should have. One of the first questions we always like to ask them is, are there any prenuptial agreements or are there any postnuptial agreements? Um, because that can definitely restrict your ability um, to, or not really restrict your ability, but it really kind of limits your ability on what you're going to be doing with those assets um, or how we're going to characterize those assets in an estate plan. So, um, you know, Kayla, I don't know how much, uh, have, you know, you've seen a lot of prenuptial and postnuptial agreements, but kind of, you know, what, what has your, uh, your experience been with them? It's funny because I don't have a lot of practical experience with, with prenups or postnups because when you are in the mood to say, hey, a prenup is a good idea, is during the time that you're probably not getting along with your spouse so much anymore and then it's, it's, it's too late or they won't agree. I would, at least in theory, highly recommend that anybody who gets married does a, a prenup or a postnup, um, even if you don't have a lot of assets to begin with, because you don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, I can't personally put my money where my mouth is because when I got married, I brought up the idea of a prenup and it was steadfastly declined. And I like, I'm sure thousands, millions of others went, I'm in love with my spouse. I do not want to make this an uncomfortable situation and I don't want to make them think that I'm planning on getting divorced. I'm already one foot out the door. So I dropped it. And luckily we're two years married and still doing okay. <laughs> I'll keep you guys updated if that changes. Um, but because of that, because people don't have that, they don't have that desire to have that uncomfortable conversation until it's too late to have that uncomfortable conversation. And I think that that's kind of a big difference with uh, estate planning and, and family law, divorce law, is that at least in estate planning, everyone's like, well, I mean, I know I'm going to die one day and I don't want to have this conversation. And I'm sure plenty of people wait until they know something is happening. But with divorce, nobody walks into my office unless they are like, my marriage is over, let's get on this. I've done one prenup and this is my third year being an attorney. And so, I mean, so far so good. They're still married to the best of my knowledge. I, oh my goodness. It's so, I can't agree. Yeah, more. That's so my, so Stephen and I, my, my husband and I, so we actually, we got married right after law school. And of course I took a community property class and very much was told by our professor that Everyone needs to have a prenuptial agreement. But it's like you said, it's one person brings it up and then it's like, oh, well, we also have all these expensive expenses with the wedding and well, does this really need to happen? And then the discussion kind of ends. I feel like with younger clients, uh, we typically see the pressure from a family especially if they're coming from just generational wealth that the family is more insistent upon having a prenuptial agreement. Or I think on the flip side, and Brent, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. It's more of the clients who, um, it's not their first marriage. 
So they've seen a divorce once, they know what can happen, they don't want to go through it again. Or we've actually seen a lot of postnuptial agreements where we've got clients, they've been married for say five years plus already. And at this point, you know, either maybe one spouse has a lot of businesses, um, you know, they're kind of doing a lot of stuff on their own and they kind of want to be able to protect those assets. And then they've decided, you know, at this point, I kind of want to have a prenup or postnuptial agreement. Well, I've done, I've done uh, quite a few prenups and postnups. It does tend to be people who either are on a, uh, not their first marriage or they just happen to have accumulated some wealth or they have some family wealth. And, you know, as you're pointing out, the, the family does not want the family wealth to end up in the hands of the spouse. Um, sometimes uh, the negotiations are uncomfortable, even though everybody seems to agree that they're going to have a prenup. Uh, sometimes those negotiations can be uncomfortable, but we usually get them done. But what, one of the keys, though, to having a valid prenup in Arizona is, is really that you need time. And you really need both sides to be represented by attorneys. That can be a big hurdle. Um, sometimes the idea of hiring two lawyers to then sift through all of your personal affairs just before you're about to get married, which is supposed to be a very fun and exciting event, throws a little bit of water on the fire. And so that's a little bit of a hurdle. You just can't, but you just can't put one together at the last minute. The problem is if you put one together at the last minute, there's always an argument or potential for an argument that the prenup was coerced or proper disclosures were not made because to have a valid prenup, you really have to disclose to each other an accurate list of all of your assets and liabilities. And to do that takes time and effort. And it's not a, it's not really an idle thing that you do. Um, Arizona has a statute that tells you if you do these things, then your prenup is going to be valid unless it is quote unquote unconscionable. And that's a pretty high legal standard. On the flip side, Arizona does not have a statute on postnuptial agreements. We have case law that says that married couples are free to enter into contracts with one another. The difference being that the legal standard that's applied to postnuptial agreements is whether or not it is a reasonable and fair agreement between the spouses. That's a much easier or more difficult standard depending on what side of enforcing the agreement you're on. And, and the way that the courts have applied it in Arizona is actually quite broad. So there was a case that came out a couple of years ago, the Austin, the Austin case. Uh, and I knew some of the lawyers that were involved in the case. And essentially, this is probably a terrible recitation of the facts of the case, but I'll, I'll give you a very, very, very uh, 30,000 foot uh, recitation. But the essential facts of the case were it, it ultimately didn't really directly involve um, marital property. It was a, a membership interest in an LLC and a spouse a non-participating spouse was asked to sign off on this LLC operating agreement and the operating agreement imposed restrictions on the use and management of the property. And the court determined that that operating agreement was a postnuptial agreement because it changed the nature of the property interest in community property vis-a-vis -vis the two spouses during the marriage. Now, try to think about how that would apply broadly and it's like basically every company that has governing documents um, where you have a spouse signing off giving the other spouse the authority say to manage and vote the shares or manage and 
and vote, the partnership interests, et cetera. Every one of those applies. And every single time that you do anything that alters the management authority of the spouses over community property is potentially a postnuptial agreement and subject to this reasonableness and fairness standard, which is pretty easy to meet. I mean, if you basically didn't do the things you would normally do with a prenup where everybody has their own uh, attorneys and they get proper counsel and they had time to think about it and they got proper disclosures, those sorts of things. Um, I don't think it's a terribly difficult standard to meet legally. And that's what makes postnuptial agreements challenging. Not to say that we don't do them, just it makes them uh, challenging. So you have to go into them eyes wide open. Yeah, definitely. So then if obviously, so if, if a couple has a prenuptial postnuptial agreement right off the bat, and let's, we're assuming that this is a valid um, agreement, uh, they both have representation, proper disclosure has been made. So at that point, you know, the couple can um, obviously determine at that point, you know, the, the rights to the property if in the event of the termination of the marriage. So the flip side, and like we said, it's not all that common that someone's going to actually get a prenuptial or that they're going to go into a postnuptial agreement. So now we're at divorce, unfortunately. So um, Kayla, can you kind of walk us through like when a client comes to you and they just told you, I'm not getting along with my spouse. I don't think it's going to work anymore. I think we're about the time we're going to file for divorce. What happens next? Like I'm sure there's, you know, so many things, of course, that are going through this person's mind, especially when you have children involved. So kind of what, can you walk us through what those first steps are? Well, so when I am representing a person in a divorce, the two big things that you have to address are property and custody. So as far as how these things fall in line over the course of the process really depends on whether it's an amicable divorce or not. Um, most of my clients are not because if you're getting an amicable divorce, you are probably not hiring an attorney, although I've done a couple. <laughs> um, unfortunately, not the majority of my clients, but I, I've, I've done a couple. As far as the property goes, basically your options are sell it, settle it out of court on your own, figure it out. And I'm assuming that there's no prenup or postnup here because that's just a vast majority of my clients don't have those. If you can't figure it out by yourself, then you get ready for trial is, is basically the other thing. You can go to an arbitrator, you could go to a, a private party mediator, but uh, most of my clients don't. It's we try to settle it ourselves or we go to court over it. And then it's it's a matter of inventorying, you know, the property you think you guys have built during the marriage, how much you think they're owed. Sometimes you have to get uh, assessments done on all of them, which is horribly annoying. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of money. And then there's disagreements as far as, oh, they're lying. They are not disclosing this kind of property or they're overvaluing this kind of property or, you know, I want the house, but I don't want to pay for it. And then spousal maintenance gets thrown in there and it's, it's just a big old mess. With custody, it's different because I think the courts are a bit more motivated to not let custody stuff go to trial because the pinnacle consideration in all family law cases where kids are involved is is what is in the best interest of these children. And in keeping that in mind, the courts are like, well, the best interest is not for these parents to destroy whatever co-parenting relationship they have left by pitting them against each other in trial. And, and even like if the kids are interviewed, they can be put in the middle of it unnecessarily. So they give you much more 
opportunity. Um, they, the courts will pay for the parties to go to mediation, but mediation is only for custody, which is an umbrella term for uh, legal decision-making, which is legal custody and, and parenting time, which is physical custody. As far as you know, exactly what to expect and how long the process takes, really depends. The statutory minimum for data filing to date of divorce is 60 days. And I have had clients sign their consent decree at day 40 and are just waiting for the rest of the 20 days to run out. And on the other side, I have one client who was one of the very first who hired me as an associate at my firm back in the day, and we are still going. Uh, it has been, I want to say it's been two years next month or the month after, and they're not even divorced. They're, it's not like they got divorced and are keeping coming back and fighting on stuff. They are just, they just can't stop fighting and, and can't make agreements and, and they're still, they're still going. Um, but it, it really depends on the case, depends on if you have kids, depends on if you guys still like each other at all, or if you don't, that, that can make a huge difference. Yeah, definitely. We, uh, we have a case where it, it, you know, everyone tried to be amicable and, you know, we've seen our clients end up, you know, they having to get their own family law attorneys for it. And there's just so many business interests. You know, we really love, uh, you know, a lot of our clients, you know, own, um, various entities, you've got LLCs, you've got corporations, you've got family limited partnerships involved. Sometimes, you know, we've got the generational wealth thrown in there. And with that, you've got, you know, family trusts involved. And like you said, it can just take a long time. And, you know, when you're first looking at, okay, step number one, what is community property? And what's separate property? What's been passed down the family line that can stay separate property? Or what's, you know, been, um, what's been uh, uh, made during the marriage. And then you've got stuff that's been commingled or you've got property that's been transmuted from separate property into community property because of, you know, maybe some titling or, you know, maybe we've just mixed assets together where it's just too hard to determine anymore. And like you said, when you've got to do valuations on this property. That takes a long time. You're getting appraisals and everyone's trying to agree on evaluation. And it's definitely, you know, something like you said, if, if it's not an amicable divorce, you know, to kind of add this 50 step process on top of it, that can just take a long time. I know it definitely adds a lot more stress to the client situation. If you guys are interested in war stories, we have me and my, my partner, Uri is the Palmer and my partner Matt is the Randall. So together we're Randall Palmer and Bernays. Um, my, especially my partner Uri just seems to attract clients like these, but these are the people who will fight over the half empty bag of flour in the pantry or the <laughs> like basically empty bottles of liquor on top of the fridge. He one of his longest fights was over, and I really hope these clients aren't listening and they won't know who they are, even if you know, no names, but um, the fight was over this really horribly, horrendously ugly ring that was the wife's engagement ring. And so she said, well, we said, because we represented the wife, you know, that's a gift made in consideration of marriage. The marriage went through, so she gets to keep the ring. Husband says, that's a family heirloom. And there's case law to support that if it's a family heirloom, you get it back. And then we were fighting about, is it an heirloom? Is it not an heirloom? There's no proof either way, or not even was it an heirloom, because it was definitely an heirloom. You know, they have, he has pictures of his mom wearing it when she was younger. But the question was, did 
wife know it was an heirloom and did husband tell her and that's i mean hearsay is totally up for grabs in most family law cases which is super fun but you know that's hearsay and it's he said she said you can't really decide which one's right and then i think somehow we just landed on you can have it back but you need to pay for it. And then we had to go get the ring evaluated. And we made it a game in the office because my partner, Uri, went to go get the ring evaluated. He had, uh, or valued, um, he had the, the uh, price, the estimated cost of the ring in his hand. And he's like, I want everybody in this office to guess. So he passed the ring around and we all looked at it and it was just ugly. I can't describe it in detail because I feel like that's verging on uh, confidentiality issues. <laughs> but I just, you're just gonna have to trust me. It was, it was a bad looking ring. And I was like, this is costume jewelry. This is maybe $200, $300. And, and most people in the office were like, no, this is trash. This is, this is not worth that much money. And then Uri shows us and it's a $7,000 ring. And we called our client because that means, you know, husband's got to buy her out of this ring. He's got to pay her $7,000 for this ring back. And she apparently on the phone was cheering so hard that her coworkers thought her husband had died because that is the only thing that could have made her that happy. Oh my goodness. And that's family law. It's very fun. <laughs> that's very similar to probate disputes as well. <laughs> yes. Oh, it just, it just gets awful when and, you know, at one point, all these people loved each other very much, or at least presumably in family law. Maybe you don't love your family, but at some point during your marriage, you probably loved that person. But the second that it goes bad, it can go really bad to the point that if you're cheering, your coworkers go, did your husband die? Good for you, girl. Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's a... Uh, these fight studio. Yeah, one of the one of the first probate dispute cases that I handled when I was a brand new lawyer was a million million and a half dollar estate. Uh, we had figured out just about everything, and you know they were spending thousands and thousands of dollars uh, every month on me trying to get this case sorted out and documented. And the last piece of it, and it dragged on and on and on for months and we spent thousands and thousands of dollars on it was what to do with the coin collect that was basically valueless. I mean, it was just, it was somebody's coin collection, you know, it's maybe worth a couple hundred bucks. It's not a big deal. But there was so much emotion attached to that item that we ended up spending months of negotiating time and thousands of dollars just on our side, thousands of dollars in legal fees, trying to uh, negotiate our way around that issue, and that was pretty eye-opening for me as a brand as a brand new lawyer that you could have nego already fixed million million and a half dollar problem, and people would still be fixated in those sorts of things, and that just happens. I, I think that fights over property not always, but sometimes can get more contentious than fights over children, and it. I like to think the reason for that is, is that children are, you know, sentient beings with thoughts and feelings. And so hopefully their parents go, I could fight my spouse till we die over custody of these kids, but what will that do to our kids? That's not fair. You know, let's try to settle this. Not that everybody thinks that way, but that's, that's, that's a nice idea. Whereas with property, that doesn't feel anything. So you don't have to worry about the property's feelings. You can just keep on shouting about it. Nobody's, nobody's any the wiser about it. Yeah. One of the issues that we're usually concerned about when we have especially high net worth clients who come into a marriage with their own property. So it's separate property as they step into the church house doors, right, to get married, uh, but they don't have a prenuptial agreement, is that if and when they get divorced, their spouse, not saying the fact that it's their separate property, even if they kept it totally separate, you know, even say it's a, a tangible asset that can't really be easily mixed like that 
house or, or real estate, uh, that the spouse will claim to have a community property lien on that property. So can you talk, Kayla, can you talk about that just a little bit, like that concept and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you bring that up because I have two cases uh, active right now where that is the argument. I, I represent the people who are not the separate property owners of the house. They are the spouses of the separate property owners, but they have one case lived in the house so long and it was their income that paid for the mortgage, but that income is community property, but it's community property paying for a separate property home. Um, the way that we were figuring that out, me and opposing counsel, is he signed a disclaimer deed. They purchased the house during the marriage, but he signed a disclaimer deed saying, this is your sole and separate property. I have no right to this. And that was about, I don't know, five or six years ago. In the last five or six years, he has renovated the house. He has done physical labor to make the house more valuable. And in doing so, the house gained $50,000, $100,000 in value. So though the house now is worth I don't know. That's part of the argument. We don't know exactly how much it's worth right now. We think it's worth about 200000 But he would ordinarily, if that were truly a community property home, he would be owed you know, $100,000 minus half of the mortgage in, in equity. But because he signed that disclaimer deed, he's not entitled to that full value. He's entitled to the value of the house the day he signed that disclaimer deed to the date that divorce was filed. Because we think it's grown about $100,000 in value and because he was contributing to payments for the house and because he was contributing sweat equity to the house, he that that. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That growth in value of the house is not due to the natural sort of inflation of house prices. It's due to community labor. And so he is owed that increase. Um, and that's our main argument is we're saying it's a lot more than they're saying. I'm trying to get my client, you know, about $50,000. They're saying he gets about 10. So, um, but that's, that's something that can become complicated in a divorce. If that house is not your property, but you help pay for the mortgage, you help pay for utilities, you help remodel it, you know, you are a caretaker for that home if you're the stay-at-home partner and clean it and are there for the plumbers and the workmen and whatever you might do with the house. It can not necessarily change the house's characterization. It could still just be separate property no matter what you do to it, but it does change your entitlement to what you are owed in that house. And, and even though it's not the full equity of the house, there, there could be a community lien against it. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a, it's a real challenge, especially as you have other types of hard to value assets. So for example, uh, business interests are very difficult to value. And that makes the issue a battle of experts about what the value was and what it is now. And then an argument about if there's an increase or an appreciation in the value between, you know, X day being the day of the marriage and X day plus however many years, the day of the divorce, uh, how much of that was the product of community labor or even community funds. And I see that leaking into uh, other family members beyond just the two people who are being married. So you know, we'll have clients who they own a business and they're in the business together with a sibling or two. And one of those siblings is or is getting married. And so we have this conversation about like, well, yeah, this business, this family business is separate property, but if they don't have a prenup or they got married and they don't, they never did do a prenup. Um, it's possible in a divorce, your now ex-in-law 
could have a lien on their interest in your company. And so, you know, should we try to take some action to deal with that situation in some way? You know, do you want to be, do you want to be in a scenario where essentially you're a partner with your in-law uh, because they end up with a piece of the company in a divorce? That Those are uh, not the most pleasant conversations, but really necessary conversations. Once you, you know, you think about like people's wealth and the things that they own, like the more complex it gets, it's just like there's more uh, different ways that you have to think about potentially protecting it. Or if you haven't done things to protect it, ways that it can be attacked by creditors. And it just tends to be that the biggest creditor is divorce. So one thing too, Brent, I think, you know, we obviously, you know, since we focus more on the estate planning side rather than the family law side, you know, we see a lot of clients who come to us and, you know, they're getting a divorce. We're not their family law attorney, but they want help with the estate planning side. Like I mentioned earlier, if we've got clients with the family generational wealth, like you said, when you've got a lot of business interests involved and it's like, all right, we had this beautiful estate plan that someone put together. It was a great job by that attorney. And now we have to completely dismantle it. And also, you know, now that we have this like estate plan, you know, what happens to it? Um, what if we don't want to dismantle it right away? You know, I've got a lot of stuff going on with this divorce right now. I'm paying the divorce attorney, but you know, can I just keep my documents the same for a little while? Things like that. Um, you know, I think one thing that's I think is kind of a relief for a lot of our clients is that Arizona has a statute where once a divorce decree is issued, then automatically an ex-spouse is disqualified from being a beneficiary for certain assets. I will say that for certain assets. So for example, under a will or trust, if your spouse was your primary beneficiary, once a divorce decree is issued, your spouse is no longer disqualified. If, you know, the day after the divorce decree was issued, unfortunately, the, the, the one spouse passes away, the other spouse is just basically considered predeceased. And so they don't get any of the assets. And I think that's a, definitely a big relief that, you know, Arizona law kind of already presumes that you're getting a divorce and the divorce is final probably don't want your ex-spouse to be a beneficiary under your estate plan. Um, but there are certain assets that can be a little bit more tricky. Um, so like I said, um, a will and a trust, Arizona law disqualifies you. Uh, payable on death accounts, transfer on death de designations, all of that stuff, Arizona law disqualifies your ex-spouse. Um, if there's joint tenancy with right of survivorship property or community property with right of survivorship, um, obviously the community that, that joint tenancy is considered broken at that point. And so it's going to be considered tenancy and common property. So there's no survivorship component anymore to it. Um, but I know there's, it gets a little bit more tricky when you have 401ks, you've got profit sharing plans, and you've got ERISA plans. Um, you know, this is an Arizona statute. And so when you have federal law, Arizona law is not going to trump federal law. So if you have your ex-spouse as a beneficiary under, say, your profit sharing plan or your 401k, they may still be a beneficiary under that plan. And that beneficiary designation is going to be the one that kind of controls. And so I know, you know, when we see a client who's going through a divorce, we immediately let them know that, hey, we need to go through all your beneficiary designations. We don't want to rely on the statute to disqualify your ex-spouse as being a beneficiary. Let's change this now. Let's make sure that the person you want to be the beneficiary, whether that's your kids, your parents, friends, whoever, those are the people who are actually going to be the beneficiaries 
under all these various types of plans or, you know, if your estate plan, things like that. And the, the issue with the qualified plans is that they're, they're uh, if they're employer plans, they're governed by ERISA and ERISA requires you to have a qualified domestic relation order in order to change the beneficiary and split the plans up. And so if that hasn't happened during the course of the divorce, then you really have to go back and get those orders from the divorce court um, so that those plans can be properly divided. Most, I mean, most, uh, I think most divorces that include ERISA covered plans um, usually include a qualified domestic relation order anyways. IRAs, on the other hand, are not covered by ERISA, and so they can be divided by a regular old uh, divorce decree. Uh, and it's it's when you have a division of the IRA subject to a divorce and when you have a division of uh, an ERISA plan subject to a qualified domestic relation order, the real magic is that then you can divide the plan on a tax-free basis. And so it's not deemed a withdrawal from the plan and so nobody has to pick up income tax to divide those accounts. Otherwise, if you just divide it in an account just between you and your spouse, just willy-nilly without a divorce and you know, order somewhere in play, uh, it'd be as if you took all the money out and you would have to pay tax on it. And you may have to pay early withdrawal penalties and interest. So uh, I'd say most uh, most divorces that I see kind of take care of that issue. There is one kind of strange little nuance in the IRA side of things where if you had started to take out what are called a series of substantially equal periodic payments, which is a series of payments that you're taking out every year from a plan before you turn 59 and a half in order to avoid the early withdrawal penalty, which is a 10% penalty, that you cannot modify that uh, distribution stream for at least five years. And a modification includes uh, contributions to accounts or even like splitting up accounts. There's not really clear authority that I've ever seen that a divorce decree trumps that rule or that the general rule about splitting up uh, IRAs subject to a divorce decree uh, trumps that rule. So those those plans can be really tricky if if uh, somebody has started to take these series of substantially equal periodic payments from IRAs, those plans can be really tricky um, to divide up in, in a divorce. I've only ever been involved in them on the uh, tax nerd side uh, of advising on what to do with them in the divorce than the actual divorce attorney side of what to do with them during the divorce. But I know that that's a, a tricky little income tax issue. One of the other, uh, there's sort of two other competing tax things, trivia items that maybe we should just mention here. In case anybody cares. Number one, uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act eliminated the deduction for alimony payments, uh, which effectively made alimony payments more expensive for the payor because they can no longer deduct those payments. I think sophisticated divorce attorneys who picked up on that probably figured out that, oh, that means it's more expensive for me. That means I can reduce in negotiating down potential alimony payments that I'm offering because now I know I don't get that tax deduction. Whereas before I could afford to pay more because my effective rate of payment was less than say the, the, the stated rate because I got to deduct it against my taxes. So now whatever that difference is between the tax deduction and, and not having a tax deduction, I think that's where the, the negotiation is on those alimony payments now. And that was a federal tax gain. Then uh, the other thing that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did was it eliminated a rule that said that if you essentially set up a trust as part of your property settlement, even though your spouse 
is soon to be ex-spouse is the beneficiary of the trust that you're not treated. You, the person setting up the trust, are not treated as the grantor of that trust. They took they took away that rule. What it did was it meant that if you set up that trust before you get divorced, when you set up the trust, your spouse is a beneficiary. And under the normal grantor trust rules, you are now deemed to own everything in the trust for income tax purposes. You, the person who set up the trust for your now soon to be ex-spouse, have to pay the income taxes on that spouse. So it's basically meant that those trusts have to be a post-decree creation. Otherwise, you have this income tax issue. And the only way to kind of resolve the issue otherwise, you have to set up the trust before the decree is entered, is you would have to have a mechanism within the trust where the donor spouse uh, gets reimbursed for the taxes, which of course drains, drains the trust down. So uh, that's sort of a weird little thing. But otherwise, sort of outside of that, there's a very long-standing rule that basically says that division of property and transactions and property between spouses is a tax-free event. So most uh, most divorces where you're splitting up property, where you would think if you were doing that with your business partner, uh, it's possible that you could, you could be triggering a taxable event. As between spouses, it's not an issue. So uh, just a few little tax tidbits there for anybody who cares about that sort of thing. When I think too, it's important to note, like we, we talked about the, you know, the division of assets and whether or not your spouse is going to be a beneficiary or not under um, the various rules. And I think too, and when you look at the estate planning context, it's really important to note that, you know, Kayla, as you mentioned, when a couple is going through a divorce, it can take a long time. It could be short, like you said, it could be a fast one, expedited, if it's easy to the point. But if it's not an amicable divorce, it's a complicated one where there's a lot of assets, it can take a really long time. And we talked about how these rules go into effect when you have a divorce decree. So not once you know, you've you filed for divorce. So a big thing that we always try to advise our clients on is, all right, if you've got, say, a joint estate plan with your soon-to-be ex-spouse, we need to look at creating new documents for you in the meantime, because you don't know how long this divorce is going to play out. And for example, do you want your soon-to-be ex-spouse as your agent on your healthcare power of attorney, the person who's going to be making all the decisions? Once the divorce decree is final, then Arizona law automatically says that your ex-spouse is not going to be in that fiduciary role. But until that divorce decree happens, you know, even if there's just a legal separation, your ex-spouse, if they're the primary role in all your, you know, in your financial power of attorney, as your personal representative on your estate, your trustee, trustee, do you really want that person in that role? And so we really try and, you know, encourage our clients, you know, hey, let's just get some documents going in the meantime. Once the divorce is final, obviously at that point, we have a lot better idea of kind of where the property is at, how it's been divided. We don't, of course, want to, you know, intrude on a divorce proceeding, but we want to make sure that just from a planning perspective that our clients are taken care of and whoever they want to serve in those roles is the person they actually want serving in those roles. I just had a case like that and uh, it's, it's on the probate side because I represented wife who was divorcing husband we filed the divorce paperwork two weeks before he passed away really suddenly and unexpectedly, but they weren't officially divorced. And they were so early in the process that my position and her position, my client, is that she is the surviving spouse. His family disagrees. So I have passed her along to a, a, a friend of mine who does more probate stuff because that's where I'm so far out of my depth. I was like, once 
once your husband dies, I do not know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what you do with your stuff. I'm so sorry. But it's it's a really interesting argument. I don't I don't know if there's a, a black and white rule of when are you no longer the surviving spouse, except for when the divorce decree is finalized. I'm sure there's some argument that it, you know, you turn it in, you have a heart attack on your way out of the courthouse and the judge didn't sign it yet. You know, you might not be a surviving spouse then, but generally, yeah, it, it can take it could take that final signature. And most of my cases take at least at least six months, if not a year, if not two years, God forbid this case I was just talking about takes three years, but it's possible. So I would highly recommend that if you, if you can afford a family law attorney, go ahead and get yourself a a state attorney too, just, just in case. Yeah, absolutely. And even too, I I forgot to mention earlier, you know, when we talk about children, you know, obviously when you have two spouses and they're going through a divorce, you know, one spouse, you know, while the divorce proceeding is going on, that spouse obviously is going to have inherent rights with, you know, custody rights over the children, things like that. Um, and, but besides that amount, you know, when, when you have a joint estate plan, you know, normally when we have couples, when they have um, minor children or income, uh, children who may have special needs and they want to appoint guardians for them, if something should happen to them, you know, again, that's, a joint estate plan together. They thought about that together. Well, maybe it was your soon-to-be ex-in-laws and maybe you're not so amicable with them anymore. And so, you know, when looking at all these documents and when, you know, looking at, you know, who do I want to reserve in these different roles, you know, you should also look at who are going to be the potential guardians of my children if obviously I, you know, one spouse isn't able to serve And then if the other seem to be ex-spouse also isn't able to serve as a guardian as well. And this brings up sort of a issue, not necessarily family law, it's more juvenile law uh, with the termination of parental rights is that, you know, you're not married to this person. They're the parent of your child. And this person, for whatever reason, is not a fit parent. Uh, They've abandoned, they've neglected, they've abused, something like that. But if you make your estate plan and you say, you know, I am a single parent and I want my mom to be my child's guardian if I die when my child is still under 18, that's all well and good. But if you've still got a legal parent, they've got a right to that child unless and until you terminate their parental rights. I think there is a very good argument that grandma could still get the kid, but it's not as it's not as simple. I'd say about 50% of my practice is divorce and the other 50% of my practice is juvenile law with termination of parental rights, uh, Department of Child Safety cases, and most of all adoptions, which is what I would really, really like to do. But divorce keeps the lights on. So that's that's the other half of my business. But uh, that's, that's another issue that's kind of uh, interesting to think about when you think about where do I want my kids to go? Because you might want your kids to go somewhere. The other parent might not agree. And, and what do you do in those circumstances? Either you, you know, see who dies first and see what happens, or you, you take that necessary next step. If, if the other parent is truly just not a safe and, and practical parent, then, you know, do what you got to do. Yeah. It's a really tough situation. I mean, in, in a divorce proceeding or sorry, in a, a divorce proceeding in a guardianship proceeding, it's especially ch- uh, difficult with minor kids because the authority that the court is granting the guardian is the authority of a parent. And so if you have a parent who has that authority, it has not been terminated. Um, they, the minor child technically doesn't need a guardian. They have a parent who has the legal authority to make decisions for them. And so if you have an unfit parent who fits that role, 
and a deceased parent, and now you need to have a guardianship proceeding essentially about the unfitness and terminating the parental rights of the unfit parent. I mean, obviously, that's a, that's a traumatic event for everybody involved and gets very messy very quickly. Um, it's it's never easy. With, with people in general, I think it's never easy. And when you add uh, adults who don't have their things together and then minor kids who are in a circumstance that is really no fault of their own uh, and they're suddenly thrown into a court proceeding. It's pretty tough. It's hard enough for the adults to understand what's happening in the courthouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So then at this point, you know, we've kind of gone through the divorce proceeding, however long this has taken. It's, you know, it's finally gotten finalized. You know, obviously at this point, you know, Brent, you and I, we've advised our client, we need to revise your estate plan. Once the property division is is settled and that's finalized, we have a, a way better idea of how you know we would um, advise our client on you know their estate plan, what kind of trust they may need, um, things like that. What else would you recommend for a client who's just coming out post divorce in terms of you know protecting their assets in the future and just kind of next steps on where they can go from this this new beginning, basically. I feel like if I could give advice to clients in hindsight is, I think something that would be really important is if, if divorce is inevitable and you, you see it coming that way, it's probably a good idea to get divorced while you still like each other instead of waiting until it's those tooth and nail drag out fights. Because when you still like each other, even if you're not in love anymore, the relationship it just isn't working for whatever reason, it's, it's much easier to sit down and come to joint decisions together about kids, about property. And, you know, at that point, it, it's not, I suppose you could do that, do a postnuptial agreement, see if the marriage works out. And then if it doesn't, you get divorced, but you've got that postnup agreement, so you're good to go. But of course, this is all, you know, with, with, with hindsight. Nobody really thinks of that when it's happening. When you're still friends with your spouse, you're like, oh, we're just going through a rough patch. Like you don't, a lot of people don't know their marriage is over until it is over and even (laughs) then some. Um, But something else that I suggest is, you know, if you're going to go at the aisle again, (laughs) good for you. Very brave. I think it's important to have those hard conversations before you get married. And if you can't have those hard conversations and you have assets to lose, then, you know, I'm not here to give marriage advice or personal advice, but if you're not able to have that kind of financial conversation with your spouse, then this is maybe somebody that you don't trust a hundred percent and maybe stay engaged a little bit longer and make sure it's, make sure it's okay. Um, but for, I think this is important to note for unmarried partners, because of course the modern trend is people are getting married much later in life. Some people don't get married at all and that's all well and good. And I very much respect that, but I have seen people get super screwed by the system because your property rights are only protected with the stuff that you get with your partner if you are married to that partner. If you are not married to that partner, the family court will not touch it. And if you guys own something jointly or you have an argument that you own it jointly, you have to go to the civil court and argue about contracts and ownership and stuff like that. So I have a lot of friends my age, friends that we went to law school with or friends that we went to college with who are living with long-term partners but are not married and they're buying houses together, buying cars together, having kids together. And of my close friend group, I don't see any of them breaking up anytime soon. But with all the love in my heart, I want to grab them by the shoulders and give them a good shake and say, go get married for the love of God, please. But do a prenup first. It's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think one of the things that people learn after divorce is what you're alluding to, which is that 
in a lot of ways. In the eyes of the law, a marriage is a property relationship between two people. And that is not necessarily true. I don't say that in in a way to say that uh, you know the love that people have between each other is diminished or less than it really is. It's just that in the eyes of the law, solely from that that point of view, in the eyes of the law, it's a property relationship. That's it, plain and simple. You get married, you have property rights. You get married, you acquire property rights you didn't have before. You get divorced, you have to divide up those property rights, and you have to act. You are given those property rights by the good graces of the legislature in our state, and you have to ask the court's permission to get out of them. You know, you can't just you can't just get rid of those property rights. Or if you do want to try to get rid of those property rights, you have to do it in a legal way. You, know, you have to have a, a post-nuptial agreement like you're describing. Uh, it's funny, I was I was at a lunch one time. It was me and two other lawyers. And across the table from us were a few accountants and we were having a nice lunch. And one of the accountants was telling us how he was thinking about buying a house with his long-term girlfriend and how they were both going to be on the title and, and they were dealing with getting the mortgage. And he was asking us, should I do this? Is this a good idea? Every one of us said, no, this is a bad idea. Don't, what you're describing to us is a horrible idea. Do not do this. And he must have asked us, I don't know how many different ways. It was like three or four different ways that he asked the exact same question. We gave him the exact same answer. This was during, during the lunch. At the end of the lunch, he asked us again in a slightly different way. We gave him the same answer. I'm convinced he just went and did it. Oh. I mean, there was probably like $1,500 an hour worth of legal advice at the table. And he just was not having it. But that's, you know, that's people. And that's, that's the problem with divorce law is that, is that not always, but very often starts with that blind love. This is my person. I trust them inherently. Let's do this. But statistically, half of those don't work out. So I think it's, it's, and I I never, it's funny being a newlywed and a divorce attorney because I very much respect loving relationships. I very much respect the institution of marriage, you know, the modern institution of marriage where I can get married too. I super love that. Um, I I don't mean to be jaded and I don't mean to be, to have, well, I do have dark humor about it because it's funny, but I don't mean to say that it's worthless. Don't do it. But it is, it's what Brent said. It's, it is a contract. It is something that you do to protect yourself. You get tax benefits from it. Your kids are better off for it. But if you if you were to take away all of those protections, why why would anybody get married? So if you I feel like if you really you know love this person, you want to start life with this person, you trust this person so much, you're willing to get property with this person jointly. Just go marry the person. Go to the courthouse tomorrow. Don't even tell anybody about it. It's not necessary. Just go marry that person. And if you decide, hey, this isn't going to work, get divorced, and you guys clean up your house real nice and and split it 50-50, just for the love of God, please, everybody go get married. This sounds like you're going to be in the cottage industry of unmarried couples dividing their property pretty soon in your future, Kayla. I'm just trying to get clients. Everybody goes, gets married to people that they shouldn't marry and then they divorce me. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that happy romantic note, um, I think we covered everything. Um, Kayla, thank you so much. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you, ask you questions? 
Sure. So my firm is Randall Palmer and Bernays. Randall is R-A-N-D-L-E. Palmer's P-A-L-M-E-R. And Bernays, that's me, is B-E-R-N-A-Y-S. Our website is rpbtucson.com. You can find me and my partners there, some little blippets about the practice areas uh, in which we work. And if you, you know, want a consult, if you feel like you're walking down that aisle and I'm taking my advice, and getting a prenup, please God, please do. Uh, I don't know. I'll just say if you guys mention this podcast, I'll give you a half hour free consult. Usually your consults are $200, but if you, or if you're getting divorced, half hour free consult, half hour free consult for you, for you, for you, just mention the podcast. Um, I'll warn my receptionist tomorrow that we might start getting called about that. Because <laughs> otherwise wow. she's like, what podcast? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, if you guys want to find me, RPB Tucson, or just, I don't know, Google me. You'll find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kayla. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, guys. This is fun. Thanks, Kayla. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.